Join me as I highlight small businesses in the craft industry with interviews on-site at distilleries, breweries, and more. This podcast is all about getting to know the people behind the craft, celebrating their hard work, and of course, having a few samples along the way. Welcome to Crafted Conversations. In this episode, I traveled to Smyrna, Delaware to visit Painted Stave Distilling and speak to one of their owners, Mike Rasmussen. The most unique thing about this craft distillery is the building's history. It was originally opened as the Smyrna Theater back in 1948, and Painted Stave has maintained much of the original aspects of the theater inside. Much of the paint on the walls and ceilings, all the ornate decorations, it's really cool. In fact, the still sits right where you would be sitting in front of the, the screen of the movie theater. It's, it's super neat. And I look forward to coming back to this when we do video episodes to really showcase their beautiful historic space. If you enjoyed this episode and others we've done, I'd appreciate it if you followed us on sh- social media. Also be sure to follow us on your preferred podcast platform and leave a rating and review. We currently stream on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, YouTube, and others. And soon we'll be doing full video format, so stay tuned. Let's get to the episode. Cheers. So, Mike, I'm here at Painted Stave in Smyrna, Delaware. Smyrna. Uh, Smyrna. Yeah. Is it Smyrna, Tennessee and Smyrna, Delaware? Uh, I think that depends on, yeah, it's an accent thing. Okay. Um, so, we get Smyrna, um, Smyrna, and yeah, but in, around here, it's Smyrna. Smyrna, okay. Mm-hmm. So, Painted Stave Distillery in Smyrna, yep. <laughs> Delaware. This is my first distillery at in Delaware. I haven't been to Delaware much, so uh, I appreciate you having me here. Yeah, thanks for coming. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, just tell me about yourself and how you got into some uh, fun distilling. Cool. Um, so myself and my business partner, yeah. um, both of us actually come from academia, right? We don't have like a story that's like my grandpappy was a moonshiner <laughs> kind of thing. Um, we were we were both academics. Um, we both actually moved to Delaware through the University of Delaware for graduate work. Um, and we had both ended up in our respective fields. Um, he, as a research scientist, myself as a public policy um, analyst, and, and um, both loved what we did, um, but also really appreciated, so cocktails, really appreciated whiskey, and if you go back about 12, 13 years when craft spirits were first starting to really appear on the scene, rather than niche things that you could find in like one market, when you started seeing some brands that were popping up. Um, We both, this is before we even knew each other, um, we both got excited about the idea of creating really neat craft spirits and being able to do it at a scale that seemed really attainable. Sure. Um, So folks like um, uh, Catoctin Creek out in Virginia, right? One of the very first places that I ever went to visit. um, People like House Spirits or St. George's and these places that were, there weren't a lot of folks around that time, but they were all a lot of open doors um, and got to travel, got to see what it really, really looked like. Um, and eventually, I think we sort of both at the same time hit the point where we were like, hey, I really like to do this. Fortunately, we both have very supportive and understanding wives. And um, we I quite literally I had bought like the business planning for dummies book, right? Like, how do you go about writing a business plan type right. of thing? And um, Delaware is a tiny little state. So I had been talking to a couple of friends and I thought this might be fun. One friend said something that somebody else overheard and was just like, well, I got I got a friend who wants to do that thing, too. And before you knew it, we were sitting down um, having a drink at Iron Hill in Wilmington, which is one of our local brew pubs. And 
basically we wanted to do the exact same thing. Um, and you know, over a couple of cups of coffee and a couple of beers kind of like hashed out what we thought a craft distillery could look like in Delaware, uh, and, and got to work. That was almost exactly 12 years ago at this point. Wow. Um, yeah, the fall of 2011, basically like that, we kicked it off. Um, and, uh, right. You said you haven't been to a distillery in Delaware. There aren't many. Right. Uh, <laughs> so I'm not at all surprised by that. Um, <laughs> And when we got started, when we wanted to get started, one of the first challenges was that you couldn't even legally open this business. Um, Delaware did not have a distilling law. Um, Dogfish Head had started making some spirits in their brew pub because the law was so broadly termed. It said you could make alcohol um, and um, if it was made from barley and... um, you know, Sam from Dog said he's he's a great guy. He uh, he sort of has always benched the rules a lot, um, and so he just started sort of making whatever he wanted. And um, eventually, that they caught on, and they're like, "Wait, a minute, you, you can't actually do that." <laughs> but um, so we in 2012, we actually wrote and crafted the craft distilling law um, that made craft distilleries legal here in Delaware. And by the end of 2013, we had signed a lease on this old movie theater in downtown Smyrna started renovating it January 4th of 2013 and opened our doors almost exactly 10 years ago, November 8th of 2013. Um, and throughout that process, there weren't a lot of ways to go and like learn about this. Right. So what we did is we went out and we visited as many distilleries, anybody who would open their door. Um, we went and spent time with people. We talked to the consultants, but there weren't, classes um there weren't the the easy ability to go to school and get training there weren't a lot of people to turn to so it was really a lot of figuring it out um relying on entities like the american distilling institute bill owens trying to get our head around what this could look like sure um and and our ideas and our concepts were totally wrong um we (laughs) it's we look totally different than we had planned on paper uh 12 years ago but but we're still here 10 years later, making some cool booze and sharing it with lots of people. Well, kudos to that. I mean, yeah. I, we you mentioned the space that we're in uh, and I want to know more about that. But I'm curious, were you a whiskey drinker prior to this? Is it why was distilling the thing that popped up? Why not craft brewing or something different? Well, um, so I loved whiskey. I, um, long before I was supposed to be drinking whiskey, I was the kid who'd show up to parties in high school with, you know, a bottle of whiskey or a bottle of gin or something like that. Um, guaranteed I didn't have to share with anybody, which is great. Um, <laughs> always loved spirits, right? That was always something I got into making cocktails. That was something that I always really, really enjoyed. We would throw fancy cocktail parties. Um, don't get me wrong. Love beer, love wine. Um, I don't have any tattoos and I can't grow a beard, so I can't be a brewer. Um, I'm just, you know, fundamentally excluded from the brewers club. Um, uh, I have lots of great friends who are brewers. Um, but and that's probably probably part of it. I knew lots and lots of people making great beer, right? But I didn't know anybody making the spirits, the things that really drove what I was passionate about consuming the whole time. Sure. Um, and so it was seeing somebody making, um, this is out at House Spirits in Oregon, was really the first like craft distillery I got into. And like tasting before Ryan Reynolds bought Aviation Gin, right? Tasting Aviation Gin um, 12 years ago and thinking, wow, this is fantastic gin. And it's made in like basically, you know, a little like gutted row house on like the southwest side of Portland. Like, right. This is cool. Mm -hmm. Um, That got me really excited about the idea of craft spirits. So whiskey, 
Um, and Jin have been really favorites for, like I said, long before I was supposed to have them as favorites. <laughs> gotcha. Um, and then getting into craft spirits um, was sort of like a rabbit hole. Um, you know, going out, buying anything and everything and tra tasting everything I get my hand on, going to all of the industry tasting nights that were being done at some of the better liquor stores down in D.C., up in Philadelphia, um, trying to really hone what were the things that I liked about spirits. Right. Um, and we spent a couple of years, I, I'd say we still do it, um, but we spent a long time really trying to get a, a broad and deep understanding of the spirits world mm -hmm. um, because well one we didn't want to be a distillery that just made like just made bourbon or just made rye whiskey we wanted to make lots and lots of different products um, because we were driven by the idea of, of trying to make products that were about how people consume their products okay right? so most people it is nice and, and the whiskey world loves, you know, like the, the Glen Karen glasses and the big ice cubes and all that. But that's still a tiny percentage of the people who are out there experiencing and enjoying spirits. Right. Um, so for us, um, we really came at this from the side of how do we create a breadth of things that we can introduce and, and really bring a lot of different people along to. If you like vodka and lemon drops are the only cocktail that you drink, that's cool. I can do that for you. Right. And we've got people who started there who now are like, you know, they want their like, you know, egg white whiskey, whiskey sours. And they've, they've got all sorts of cool things that they enjoy. That's not where they started. Sure. And if we only made one product, then we would have sort of limited ourselves in all the different people we can reach. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's, you know, something you said about the craft industry and the community around it is that it's much more open to people who aren't just the whiskey snobs of the world. I mean, obviously, I, I, I love my whiskey. Yeah, me too. And I can be a snob sometimes. <laughs> But uh, you have that extra layer of community engagement that I think is so cool. And you just said your purpose is to, you know, craft something that's for anyone. Yeah. You know, if you're if you're if you've only had Jack Daniels and it's all you know about whiskey and you only know Jack and Coke. Well, let's try something here. And this is what this is. And then 10 years down the road, they're a New York sour guy. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's another one, actually. The New York Sour people. It's amazing how many people come around to that drink. And they yeah, just think, oh, my God, this is fantastic. I'm like, yeah, man. <laughs> I, I, there's a lot of fun to be had in in every side of this business. So we we are not the craft distillery that is like in the industrial park does and and you know sort of makes all of our booze with the intent of selling it through wholesalers. Um, we engage a lot of people. Um, most of our customers are people who come here to the distillery. Um, when we first opened it was you know, every weekend, lots of tours and tastings. And as we've evolved, um, it's become much more about a curated cocktail program, a, a lot of different events that engage people in both cocktails and spirits and food, um, and trying to create those experiences that people really get excited about. Sure. Um, I think it's, it's helped us. It's helped us grow and survive as the industry landscape has changed. Um, but it is, it's not the, the business model that I think a lot of people thought craft distilling was not the business model. I thought craft distilling was, you know, 12 years ago when, when we were first getting started with it. Oh, you may mention too, you're not in that industrial part of the space. And I guess it's a good segue to tell me more about the space you're in. Cause this is an old 1940s movie theater. Yeah. Tell yeah. Me about so, that. um, we're, um, when we were looking for locations, um, as most people do, we walked through a lot of industrial parks, right? Industrial swing space, big open areas, whatever it was, you know, here's the square foot price. Um, the town of Smyrna actually got word that we were talking to somebody out in the one of the industrial parks. 
and um, great economic development strategy here. They decided to throw a party and invite us to it. And they like prepped everybody who was there like, hey, make sure you tell them about the old movie theater that's right down the street. Hey, you know, make sure. So like everyone was on message. Right. We, you know, most of the, the who's who of the town were there at this party. And um, and by the end of it, we're like, all right, I guess we really have to go look at this movie theater because <laughs> everybody brought it up. Right. Um, and we loved it. Right. Cool old movie theater. It hadn't been a theater since um, hadn't showed movies since the mid 70s. Hadn't even been used for like music performances or stage performances since the since about 83 or 84. Um, and when we walked in, it had been abandoned for eight years. The ceiling is falling down in a bunch of places. Very hard to envision what that's going to look like compared to the ease of walking into an industrial swing space. Sure. Um, so we, I think our first reaction to it was just like, oh, that'd be really cool. No, we can't <laughs> afford it. Um, and, but eventually we kept coming back around to it. Um, we kept engaging with other members of the community and eventually the right sort of group of partners and the right supports came together to make it feasible. Um, and boy, are we really happy that it happened. So we, it is, um, it's a cool old building. Um, it was a single screen theater. It had two empty lots, um, on one on one side and one on the back side that we knew could give us the ability to build on. We've had to it, since add a 5,000 square foot warehouse for barrel storage and other things. Um, we've built an outside event space and, and all of that. So it had the flexibility there and it had a really cool bones and had an awesome story. Um, you know, we get to be the keepers of the story of like the theater where, People went on their first dates. They took their kid to see, you know, Bambi here, um, stuff like that. Uh, so we get we get to play a bigger role in the community because of the building that we're in, I think. Do you think that adds? I mean, it's one thing I always ask, ask craft distillers because, you know, you personally have a story of why you got into this. You also have the story of the building you're in. Do you think that adds to the, the, the nostalgic and the sales and the quality of the spirit that you're making in the building? I, I think we... I'd like to say yes, right? Um, so when we actually, when we got started, we themed a lot of our products after the movie theater. Um, most of our stuff has been rebranded at this point in time, but our first our first vodka was silver screen vodka. It's awesome. Um, right? We did um, a number of different movie themed sort of special releases. Um, we've got a bunch of, we've got some special whiskeys and things that we did. And we, we tried really hard to integrate the theater aspect into a lot of the marketing and the stuff that we were doing um as we grew and started seeing our products leaving the state they're heading out into different states through distribution it the story of your of our location isn't as as important in marketing the product as conveying the the flavors of the product conveying a little bit more about what the product is really going to deliver in the bottle. Right. Um, so we've actually shifted away from some of that. We, we still do it with some of the things that we integrate here, but uh, it's become less of a component of our marketing and our story over time. Um, whether that will change, uh, I don't know. Um, but it's sort of that part of our evolution has been changing that how we integrate that piece into our broader story. That make that makes sense. And I, I mean, either way, you still have this space that people can come to and see the history. I mean, you have photos of the old, what it used to look like as a theater, which is really cool to see. And when you walk in the distillery itself, you actually have the original painting on the ceiling. And it, I mean, it looks like a theater when you walk into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It's wild. Yeah, and neat. So when, so when we first started renovating, um, it also had the sloped floor, right? You can imagine the floor dropped a couple of feet by the time it made it over to where my still is on the other side. 
Um, that's one of the scariest things. We're just like, I have going to have barrels, heavy barrels of precious liquid. Like I don't need a floor that anything can roll down on accidentally. <laughs> um, so engineers look at that and I, I saw it was this huge hurdle. The engineers are just like, just fill it in with crush and run, tamp it down, pour some concrete on top. No big deal. I'm like, sounds like a big deal to me. <laughs> like, like, nah, don't worry about that. Um, and uh, another weird little thing that we get, and it's actually funny. People reach out to us from all over the country because of this, because we are, um, as far as I know, the only distillery in the country that is immediately located next to a church. Oh. Um, our immediate neighbor on the the east side of, or the west side of us is the, is a Presbyterian church. Um, that same night, right, we're, we're having this party and people are talking about the movie theater and I'm just like, movie theater is right next to a church. Like, isn't that going to be a problem? And they're like, well, here's Reverend Riley. And what do you think, Reverend? And he's like, I like it. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, yeah, no, it's great. I'm a scotch drinker and, you know, Presbyterians, we drink, so we're cool. And um, we're like, oh, you guys thought of everything, didn't you? Like, we really, um, but people call us from all over the country and like, hey, man, how did you guys work that out? I'm like, our story is going to be different than yours, probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow. We, we, they, they had that, the town had that on lock before we even got a chance to ask that question. Right. That's, that's neat. Yeah. I mean, it probably helps it. Uh, you're right next door. You probably help with communion. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we, we, you know, we make sure that they get what they need for events and things like that. And um, when they need an outdoor space or something like that to do a little event, we're right here. Um, you know, being good neighbors, being in a small town is all about being good neighbors. Um, absolutely. And so as we've grown, as we've added on things that we've integrated, we do as much as we can to make sure that we're, we're a, uh, an integrated part of the community here. Yeah, and I, you had mentioned uh, before we started recording that, you know, a lot of the stuff you source is local too. Mm -hmm. uh, how important is that for you to make it, you know, that quality product that is made from the stuff that is here in the local community? I, I think that that to, to us, that was one of those pieces that we we knew we wanted to have as part of it from the beginning. Um, you know, there, there are some limitations that come with that, and obviously you have to be flexible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can't, we don't live in a spot where you can get absolutely everything locally, <laughs> right. but... Um, but the idea that distilling is really an agricultural practice, right? And it was based on what you had available, what grew well in your area is what you were likely to be making spirits from. Um, in many cases, it was leftover grain. We now would call it value-added agriculture. <laughs> um, so, so I think there's a part of that history that I think was kind of fun and important for us to embrace. Um, we're also fortunate in that we can get almost everything that we need. So um, there is a lot of good, um, high quality grain growers around here. We manage now, we can source pretty much all of the like organic and or non-GMO corn and rye and barley we need. Um, uh, Proximity Malt House, there's a big malt house is open in Southern Delaware. Um, they've been a great partner in being able to provide all of the malts that we need. Um, now sometimes, you know, you need something weird or specialty and you, you've got to go out to a larger supplier, but, um, it also makes economic sense. I mean, I'm not paying to ship corn from the Midwest, right? right? I'm not paying for those additional freight costs. So it allows us to both save on some of those shipping costs, use high quality products, uh, and try and keep some of uh, that economic impact in, in, you know, in that probably couple hundred mile range where we are here in the mid-Atlantic. Yeah, well, and that makes sense. And I mean, it probably adds because the, adds to the market value because a lot, I think the market shifted quite a bit that people prefer to have local stuff. Yeah. Um, which I think is impressive because yeah. it helps you and I out as whiskey drinkers. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah, more for the sure. merrier. Yeah, 
and and it gives you i think that there's an interesting debate in the whiskey world around the, the concept of terroir um you know in wine it's a big thing there's a lot of folks who you know the providence of the grain and the the heritage stuff and i I tell you i don't put as much stock in it to as, as i know some of my, my friends in the world do um i do think that there is something to be said for aging environments um the the humidity the temperature changes all of those pieces um you know the mid-atlantic has its own environment compared to friends in upstate new york or friends down in the carolinas or folks out in in wisconsin yeah um so there, there's a lot that creates, I think, some of those regional differences and regional sort of unique talking points. Um, and that's helpful. Yeah. Um, it's helpful for the consumers because you get to try a lot of different things. It's helpful for the producers because you get to talk about things as how they might be a little bit different. Exactly. No, it's a, it adds character to the story and the whiskey. And mm-hmm. I, I, did you, when you first started, were you sourcing anything or was it your... Um, on the whiskey side, we've never sourced a, a drop. Okay. Um, everything that we've made on that, we do source NGS um, for our vodka and gin production. Sure. Um, and um, that's a, it's because it makes economic sense. So when we opened our doors, like my, a lot of small distilleries, we opened with vodka and gin. Um, it was two years before we had our first yearling bourbon. Um, but the the whiskey was really, I think, one of our big motivators and wanting to create a lot of and fun different whiskeys. Um, uh, you know, there's there's two sides to the sourcing world. There's the folks who pretend that they're not doing it and lie about it. Um, and there's the folks who have always been upfront and honest about it and sort of, you know, embrace that as part of the industry. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of appreciation for the folks who've done that, that hard work, um, bringing in and making good booze from somebody else's juice. Um, but it wasn't where we were at. It's also economically, it's kind of tough. Yeah. When, when we opened, so right now, access to aged whiskey is not very terribly hard to come across uh access to barrels while it's a little bit tighter it's a bit harder it was a year and a half wait before we could get our first barrel really like first empty barrel coming through the door from when we placed our first order wow um so we opened during the the great barrel shortage and at the same time as every available drop of booze from mgp had been gobbled up um so we couldn't have sourced booze if we wanted to really and we couldn't have afforded to um it even if it was in our business plan sure so wow that's interesting was that something that you learned after you'd already started the the, the path to making a distillery like yeah. oh crap there's no barrels <laughs> yeah it was funny so in 2011 or 2012 um we were out at one of the american distilling institute conferences and in, out in um kentucky and talking with some of the barrel makers and they're just like they're like yeah if you want anything just like you know get on our list as fast as you possibly can and they're like well why is that and they're like well we don't have any wood yeah. um and i'm like what do you mean you don't have any you don't have any wood and they're like so the barrel world is very unique but like you imagine this nobody cuts down a hundred year old oak tree to use you know 10 percent of it to make barrels right right you make all of the other things well, a lot of those other things that it's made are wood flooring, wood cabinets, all the stuff that in 2010, 2011, nobody was renovating their houses. People weren't building new houses, right? All of that other use of the wood wasn't there. Yeah. So they had stopped cutting down the trees because they didn't need as much of it, which led to um, shortages in in the barrel industry. And um, so it was tough when we, when we wanted barrels that first year, they'd call up me like, hey, I've got two barrels do you want them you have to say yes or no immediately or else i'm calling the next person on the list and we're like 
you know, you just start, start saying yes, you end up with a weird collection of barrels. Sure. Um, rather than being able to source like one type of barrel with one char from one manufacturer. It's great for consistency, right? That's where you want to be. But that first year, we're just like, yeah, 15 gallon barrel from you, 10 gallon barrel from you, 30 gallon barrel from you. We'll take whatever we can get. Yeah. Then, wow. Man, like I said, as to the, uh, I mean, the, the, the craft part of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and the idea of being flexible. Uh, I right. mean, we're a small business, right? Small businesses, you have lots and lots of different challenges. And if you're too rigid, I think that you, you're going to have a lot of problems. Oh, I, yeah, no kidding. Well, before we uh, talk about the actual product, I'm curious about the name, Painted Stave. Mm -hmm. Where does that come from? So in doing all of my research um, around spirits, I also tried to delve in and become a bit of like the the Delaware historian around distilled spirits. I actually give talks um, at like the local Chautauquas and like through the, the Historic and Cultural Affairs Division from the state. That's cool. Um, and in doing all that research, I was sort of collecting cool bits of information. So Painted Stave doesn't actually come out of Delaware. Um, it comes out of Virginia, mm -hmm. um, uh, roundabout Richmond, Virginia. Um, and it was a reference, uh, I found it in like microfiche um, in the University of Delaware basement. Um, they were talking about um, when Delaware was going dry. So this is in, I believe it was 1917 when Newcastle County and the whole state of Delaware was going dry. And they were, there was a piece about um, folks who had been using illegal marketing or basically had been marketing alcohol illegally and things that they needed to be keep, keep an eye out for. Sure. And there was this reference to um, somebody painting a stave on a barrel um, in Virginia and they would position the barrel so that if you could see the one painted stave, it meant that they had alcohol for sale. Oh. And if you couldn't, right, they just turned the barrel around pretty easily, that it meant that they were out. And I was like, oh, that's a kind of a cool thing. And it played into a whole, there's a lot of these like um, reference points, like going to see a blind tiger, or going to see a, you know, a striped pig or like things like that. These were these like code words that were used. And so it was one of those random ones I came across, thought was really pretty neat. And it fit in well with, you know, sort of, I think how we wanted to present ourselves. Sure. Um, we've actually taken it and owned it quite a bit. Um, so for that first year and for a number of years since then, we take apart a whiskey barrel um, and we give the staves out to different artists. Oh. Um, we actually just, if you were here a week and a half ago, you would have seen painted staves on all the walls here in the gallery. Oh, um, all different artists. And then we bring them back together and we auction them off as part of our anniversary. Um, and all the money goes to support a, a scholarship fund to get young girls engaged in science and math programs. Um, so the walls are covered in painted staves. Um, and it's something we, we've we were doing it every year. Now we're going to bring it back every couple of years and do something like that. That's you know? so cool. It was kind of a fun way to integrate the name and, and, and a little bit of an event that we do here. Yeah. That's, that's wild. I, I love that, that history that you've made into a modern thing. That's, yeah. that's so cool. I mean, that's a lot of the fun of, we are ultimately in, in some ways we're historians. We're, we're telling the story, right? People, even in the products, people come and they want to know about gin and they want to know about bourbon and rye whiskey and, um, those are a lot of fun stories to tell. The product is important, no doubt. Um, but I think it's really neat to also, and we train our staff on this a lot, um, to understand that these are products that have a really cool, long history. In some cases, some things are totally new, <laughs> right? Fully inventions. You got one of those on the, on the table there for you. <laughs> but, um, but the story is important. Sure. And I think the stories engage people 
and we can tell a lot of different stories between the building, between the distillery, between the production, all those kind of things. That's so cool. Well, I think uh, we should cheers to history by tasting yeah. some of your product. There you go. Walk me through what we got here. Okay, so um, I started you off on the, um, I guess it's the left-hand side there um, with our gin. Okay. So our gin ends up still being one of our best-selling products. Um, when we set out to start making gin, one of the biggest challenges is that people are all like, nah, I don't drink gin, tastes like grandpa, like, you know, or smells <laughs> like grandpa, hopefully. Um, like that perception of gin is being this, the London dry, heavy juniper forward style of gin, which, which I actually really enjoy, but it is a massive turnoff to a lot of consumers. And there are a ton of fantastic gin cocktails that you can't make with vodka or whiskey, right? right? Um, and so when we set out to craft a gin, we looked around, um, we did a ton of tinkering with um, different botanicals, different levels of infusion, and wanted to craft a gin that was of that more botanical forward contemporary style. So where um, early ones that would you'd point towards would be Blue Coat Gin out of Philadelphia Distilling, Aviation Gin, which out of, was out of House Spirits, um, those were two of the early ones. Uh, Hendrix would be one that you'd point to, even though that is a little bit on that London dry style. Sure. The idea of boosting some of the botanicals and downplaying the sort of the holy trinity of gin, the, the juniper berries, the coriander and the angelica. Um, so what you see there is a lot of lavender, um, lemon balm, orris root. We use Delaware's state herb, which is sweet goldenrod, uh, which has a light anise sort of characteristic to it. Um, but you still have the you, juniper still in there, the pepperiness from the coriander is still in there. Um, but it is a very light, very floral style of gin um, that we think does a really great job of enjoy of engaging non-gin drinkers. Um, and it's been every year it's, you know, if not our number one or it's our number two selling product really um, since we started. And I'll say as, as one of those non-gin drinkers, um, I hate the Christmas tree drink yeah I, it's just it's too much for me one of my favorite parts about doing this and going to distilleries i love whiskey obviously but learning about the different aspects of gin and vodka that exist because mm -hmm. hey you're doing craft stuff so let's try different things with this and the, yep. and, and, and the market eats it up so that's probably one of my favorite learned moments is finding gins that i like yeah and that's you're right this is very floral and that anise i love that anise flavor mm -hmm. that's good yeah it it is so gin is really flexible, right? And I have had so many gins from all over the country and all over the world. And it's really neat how people can put a, a really, I don't want to say easy, but like um, you don't have to go crazy to find something really cool that you can integrate with it. Right. So um, there's a small distillery out in San Diego that uses a lot of uh, cilantro in their gin, right? My wife cilantro <laughs> um but i dig it um and and they're like oh we're gonna put this like you know sort of like this heritage that we've got the these like flavors that are are part of our culinary tradition we can integrate those right into it um you can do a lot with it you can look around there's folks who are out there foraging for wild botanicals they're putting spruce tips they're putting you know like all sorts of neat stuff in gin um and it's quick um, you know, you can make it today and proof it tomorrow and bottle it on Thursday and 
have it on the shelf on Friday. Yeah. Um, so when if you're a small distillery opening up, gin and vodka are two of the places where you're likely, unless you got lots and lots of money, um, <laughs> that's where you're probably going to be. It doesn't mean that it is a uh, a thoughtless product. Sure. Um, it doesn't just because it can be done quickly doesn't mean that it's not something that I think um, can be very very nuanced and interesting. Uh, and more and more, we're seeing lots of people come through. We get. We get the, the gin people who, you know, are just really excited about gin and that's why they're here and they want to try the gin that we have just as much as we get the whiskey people. Of course. Have you played with any like uh, like a barrel aged gin or any yeah. stuff? Um, so we, as far as I know, we were the first um, distillery in the country to ever release a bottled and bond gin. Oh. Um, so as soon as the, the federal government made this something you could legally do, um, we had been aging in red wine and ex-bourbon casks um, some of our gin for six years. Oh. Um, and we really loved it. We're like, well, I don't even know how we're going to exactly sell this. And we're like, all right, cool. And it was actually, um, total wine bought all of it. Um, they, I think we ended up with a couple of cases left over here, but they really liked it and they rolled it out and through their, um, spirits direct program to a few different States. Um, we, people call about it cause they're like, oh my God, I found this and I can't get it anymore. Where do I get it? And we're like, nowhere. Like <laughs> you hold on to it. Um, right. Um, but it was unique in that we had let it age for six years versus yeah. some of the barrel aged gins. Like you'll see, um, you know, maybe a couple of months or even weeks, depending on the barrel. Um, we went with some very, very well used barrels, um, and let it ride for a very long time. Oh, um, it was, it's, I still have a bottle at my house, obviously, but, um, <laughs> really super cool. Um, makes fantastic. Like it, it, it carves out this spot between like between a Boulevardier and a Negroni. Oh. Like it sort of combines both of those flavors into a really, really neat cocktail. Good um, Lord. I love it. So that's, well, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. It's pretty good. Do that again. I don't have any more of it. Not, so not. Pour some <laughs> me, but it's all gone. Um, well, man, yeah. but that, though, anyway, that gin is very fantastic. That's a lot of citrus and, and lemon on that. I, mm -hmm. I, that's very good. Yeah. Yeah. And, so. and that's lemon balm. Um, so we don't use lemon, any citrus peels or anything like that. Um, we have a little farm not far up the street from here that grows um, a all the stuff that we can grow locally fairly easy. So the lemon balm and the orris root and those other things, they can gr they grow all of that stuff for us. Very um, cool. So it's pretty cool. What's next? So next one on there is going to be our bourbon. Okay. Um, so we do, and this is comes from drinking a lot, um, or well, sorry, sampling a lot. <laughs> about that. Um, when we set out to make a bourbon, we, we tried to identify the characteristics that we thought were really important to us um both my business partner ron and i we both gravitated towards high rye bourbons so we knew that's where we wanted to be versus the the weeded bourbon or the more balanced sort of like kentucky style bourbon um so the mash bill on that's going to be 66 percent corn 26 percent rye eight percent malted barley okay um we both really enjoyed the heavier um oak characteristics um that we got from higher char barrels um, so what you've got there is coming out of 30 gallon barrels at the moment, number four char. Um, and that is a bottled and bond expression. Um, so it's at a hundred proof. The, and it, there we're harvesting our bottled and bond barrels at around four and a half to almost five years is where those are coming out at this point. Okay. Um, so urban for us was, I mentioned the whole idea of this idea of crafting spirits for how people are going to drink them. Um, I really like the robust flavors, the heavier oaky flavors, the spicier characteristics. Um, and 
when we sat down and thought about how people are likely to drink bourbon, we're like, okay, well, it's going to end up in a lot of old fashions. Um, it's going to end up in Manhattans. It's going to end up in whiskey sours. It's going to end up in this breath of cocktail. How do we craft a whiskey that stands up there? And that's why we went towards those more robust, deeper flavors than trying to go with the the weeded bourbon, the more the softer, sweeter, more nuanced sort of like flavors along that line. That so it's a, a conscious choice thinking about where we were going to end up. Yeah. Um, we recently released our 10th anniversary bourbon, um, same mash bill, right? But we we selected a few barrels that had trended towards the the sweeter characteristics, the sweeter sides, and we released our 10 year anniversary bourbon with a little bit of a different twist on it versus the the concept for the bottled and bond is really trying to have some of those those more robust flavors be what's driving that spirit. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, that's, that's a perfect explanation of it because it has that that nice rigid backbone for a cocktail. Yeah. Um, and that, that spices, I love a high rye bourbon too. So I yeah. like that a lot. Yeah, it's fun that there's been a lot more um, a lot more high rye bourbons and things have come on the market in the last 10, 10 12 years. Sure. Um, you know, you start to see, you start to see a lot more flexible, even from the really big producers, a lot more sort of cool releases and, and things like that that are coming out. Um, you know, 12 years ago, you know, uh, Basil Hayden's like was pretty much like the high rye bourbons you could find. There was like a Mickner's here and, you know, some of the expressions from Four Roses could, could check those boxes, but it was not a... It wasn't a big thing. Um, at the same time, you start to see that revival of rye whiskey, right? Um, which is it's going to be the third spirit there, <laughs> um, and and trying to figure out like how you how you integrate that, how you have those flavors, how you differentiate it enough without trying to be, you know, the really soft weeded bourbon. You're not. I'm not going to Weller or Maker's Mark. You know, that's I, I enjoy those bourbons sure. by all means. But that's not like so where sort of where we were going to for it, um, and now you see so much variety even from the large producers. Um, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and that and, you know that bourbon, it, it's it's got that fine line of it's not too complex, so you don't know where it is, but it's it's got that a, a nice enough a flavor that I could still drink that neat. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right. So. Yeah, um, I was drinking plenty of it neat this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So the goal is to make something that's going to have. Um, be able to touch on a breath of people, sure. right? Um, something that can be used and stand up nicely in cocktails doesn't disappear mm -hmm. immediately as soon as you try and work it into a cocktail. Um, but also something that, you know, on the big ice cube or, or neat, um, is going to be appealing to a pretty broad group of people. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Well, speaking of uh, things that starting to, you know, pop up in more palettes, rye. Yeah. So, um, and rye is a lot of fun. I will tell you that when we went out starting to drink rye, um, nearly everything that you could get was MGP. Right. Right. I mean, that was pretty much what was available on the market. Um, there were a couple of the big houses, you know, you could find um, Jim Beam had their rye, um, but almost everything was MGP or it was some of the small producers. Um, so dad's hat was out on the market. Um, you could find St. George's had a, had a rye. Um, there were a few of the smaller producers that that were making some neat rise. And it was also at that point where they were trying to, people were having a lot of conversations about the rye styles. It's still a debatable thing. Um, but so we sat down and we tried to taste as many rise as we could, which is a lot harder to find than bourbons 12 years ago. 
um, now there's so many, right? But um, sort of heading towards that idea, you know, you start tasting all of these, and you see the huge differences between the Pennsylvania style, like that's ninety five percent or a hundred percent rye, with that really really dry, like almost like like sucking the moisture out of your mouth kind of taste and the, the spiciness from it um, to what I would call the Kentucky styles of rye, which are like 51% rye, 49% corn. <laughs> right. Right. Like they meet the definition and that is it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then you had these, a few of them out there that were in that, what, what I call the mid Atlantic style, Maryland calls it the Maryland style. Um, though it was made throughout this whole area. It was not just Maryland. Let's be abundantly clear. Um, um, where you were integrating more corn into the mash bill. Right. And, and we talked about it being an agricultural product. So, you know, rye grows very well in Delaware in Southern Pennsylvania in Maryland, but corn also grows fairly well here. You go further North into New York and Pennsylvania, um, at least, you know, 150, 200 years ago, uh, corn did not perform very well. So it's no surprise that these variations of whiskeys developed because of what you had available to you. If you were a, if you were a farmer, if you owned a mill, this is what you were milling. Um, but the, the Maryland style I think is very approachable. Um, and so that's where we gravitated towards, um, that little bit of corn. So the mash bill that you've got here is 70% rye, 25% corn, 5% malted barley. That corn provides some sweetness, a little bit more um, viscosity, density on the palate. Some of the structure that you find in bourbon, it's not as all the way there. It's got more of the spice and those things that are driven from rye. Um, but a lot of the folks we said we found who don't like rye, one, they thought rye was Canadian whiskey and everything was 100% rye coming in Canada. Little did they know. Um, <laughs> but but a lot of the folks who maybe had tried rye whiskey um, and they had tried the Pennsylvania style were like, it's just too much. I can't mm. take it. And and so we were like, all right, well, this is a way to introduce people to rye. It takes some of those great components, um, works them into a spirit, but balances it a little bit better than you know trying to go really, really sweet like the Kentucky styles or really, really dry like the Pennsylvania style. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and I, I know that's, that's a high rye in there, but it's it's not offensively spicy yeah and there are some rise out there like for instance katakin creek and mm-hmm. i talked to becky and yeah, she, yeah, she's yeah. great yeah becky's great um but that's 100 rye yeah however they do it in such a good way that it doesn't offensively just spice you out yeah there are some rise out there that are just rye spice to be rye spice yeah and this, and this this is a good i mean even that for me that that barley comes through i love chocolatey notes and whiskey mm-hmm. yep. so that's a very like a, a sweeter yeah nice spice yep. rye. Yeah, a little bit yeah, it's so uh, that would have been very early on one of the first ones that we would have tried. Um, uh, Becky and Scott from Catoctin Creek, and actually, if you haven't had a chance to try their um, their uh, uh, hot, um, the hot honey, honey. Um, so one, good. yeah, I just had some of that. She and I were out in uh, Austin, Texas, a couple of weeks ago at an event, and um, we were trying some of that. It's pretty tasty stuff. Yeah, very good. Um, yeah, I think that's in, in every spirit. There's trying to find balance, right? And we often will get the question, well, what makes your spirit unique? Mm. And we're like, okay, well, here's the things that we're putting. It does not mean that I'm making something that is a hundred percent unique from anything anyone else is making. Here's the reason why I'm making it. Here's the concept and what goes into it. Um, and I think that is part of, again, that story that you get to tell a lot of, right. um, and as a distiller, you know, I get to sit there and say, hey, here's the choices that I made. Um, you know, here's how we modified that mash bill. Here's the barrels that we choose to use with it. 
um, because we want to try and capture those pieces. Um, that is, again, what you had right there is another bottled and bond expression, um, just about five years, 100 proof. Um, and that's where you'll see that we have now, I think, three bottled and bond whiskeys that we've got out right now. Um, and you're seeing more and more bottled and bond expressions being released from craft producers mm. because it is a it's a, a measure of quality that I think we're pretty proud of. Sure. Um, it takes a lot of time, a lot of money um, to be able to stock away whiskey and let it sit for four plus years to sell it at 100 proof when you could be bottling, you know, getting 20 percent more bottles if you bottled it at 80 proof. Right. Um, so we're really, really proud of having those bottled and bond expressions for some of our spirits, because to us, that is the investment that we've made uh, and a way to sort of utilize that measure. There's a, for a long time, bottled and bond was, it wasn't anything unique or important, right? And a lot of the bottled and bond bourbons never even left Kentucky. Sure. Uh, you had to go out there to find them. But um, I think we're seeing from a consumer standpoint, more knowledge about what that means uh, and more understanding that for smaller craft producers, that is a, a badge of honor um, that I think a lot of us are wearing at this point. So. And I think that, that it's twofold with rye because I haven't seen many bottle and bond ryes. And I mean, probably it's because I'm, I'm, I'm doing this now, but I've seen a lot of bottle and bond ryes in the last two years. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's great. I mean, it, yeah. it helps the rye influx because bottle and bond, I mean, back in the day, it, it probably meant a little bit more. And nowadays it's kind of a branding thing, but it mm -hmm. still says it's a mark of, you know, this is the whiskey that you made here at your distillery. Yep. So, yeah. And I think, um, so we've obviously watched our, our whiskeys mature, you know, in, in a great level of detail over years. Um, rye whiskey, there is some, rye, I think rye whiskey starts to really hit its stride after two to three years mm. um, versus bourbon um, as we're seeing it. And I think I, in speaking with other craft distillers, they see the same thing. It has, it has a, a longer lead time to it. So they're more like four to six years where you see your bourbons really, really hitting their stride. Right. Um, rye. So it's not as oily of a grain um, in it's a pain in the ass to mash, <laughs> um, but, but it doesn't produce. So like when you're making a corn fermentation, you start to see some of those corn oils, Cooking temperatures really matter, but there's a lot more ester formation. It's right. an oily, a more oily grain. It's a more oily spirit. Um, you have to be a little bit more judicious in your cuts, especially if you're not going to be aging it for a super long time. Right. Um, so it takes a little bit longer for those corn-based spirits to to mellow out and and really, I think, come into their own uh, versus rise really, I think, mature faster. So. There's a lot of great ryes out there that are three years old, two years old. I mean, you see producers who've been putting stuff out like crazy, like Catoctin Creek being one of them, Dad's Hat being one of them. They produce some fantastic ryes, but they're not sitting on them for six years no. um, for, for the vast majority of what they're releasing. That two-year, two- to three-year time period, um, rye's really done a lot of its maturing at that point. So um, I think that's probably why it's been longer time to see more of those ryes, because you don't have to, right? Yeah. You, you, you can really, really put out some really great rise that are two to three years old. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, and I, I have never heard the perspective before. That makes total sense. Um, all right. What's next? So the third whiskey that you've got there is a fun one. So, um, there's a story behind it, okay. which is when we got started, um, a friend of ours owned a small homebrew store, uh, like a, in his basement. Um, and he made kits. Um, now, you know, he, 
got a job, got married, like wanted to have a family eventually. So he, he sort of like, they stopped doing this business. They went off to, you know, like get jobs that actually paid the bills. Um, and so he showed up here one day with a, just a, the back of his car filled full of 10 pound bags of malted barley that were leftovers. Um, he, in the end, he had 38 different 10 pound bags, all different varieties of malted barley from, you know, just like different base malts all the way up through roasted malts, chocolate malts, uh, acidiated malts, like all these things. And he's just like, here, I'm like, oh, okay, this is cool. Uh, what do we do with this? Like, <laughs> and so what we decided instead of like being like, oh, we'll add five pounds to this batch or 10 pounds, like you would if you were a home brewer. Right. Right. We're just like, no, let's just take this. And I think we had a couple hundred pounds of, of three other malts, like two bags each of three other malts from a, a, a malt house up in Pennsylvania, Deer Creek Malt House. And we're like, we've got 42 different types of malted barley. Let's just throw it all in one batch. Oh, wow. Right. And um, not knowing what would happen. And we made it and we it tasted really cool. We put it into a barrel. We let it age. Um, eventually, we pulled it out. We opened it. We we proofed it and bottled it. We sent it out to the world as 42 malt. Right. We did a whole Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy themed <laughs> like release party and everything for it. And people loved it. And it sold out really, really fast. And we're like, shit, we could never make that again. Right. There's no way we're going to manage to get all of that. But um, but I had the list of all of the different malts. And right around that same time, um, Proximity Malt House down in Laurel, Delaware, just re had just opened. And so I took it down there and I sat down with Matt, um, who's the head of operations for at the time down there. And I was like, how do we take this all these random things and turn it into something that I can actually make. Yeah. And um, so, you know, with the guys we're like, okay, well we can group all these malts together and there's that, that's sort of like this. So we can group this and we came up with some proportions in the end. I think we ended up with eight different malts um, of theirs. We put together a new recipe, brought it back um, and started making it very, very similar. I have actually tasted it compared to the, the original one. Um, I prefer this one to it um but um so we call this one proximity malt um both it is an approximation of the original 42 malt and it is made with all malts from proximity malt house wow um so um a little bit lower this one's going to come in at um uh uh 92 proof um a lot of roasted and chocolate malts um so you get a lot of this like black coffee dark chocolate um, really, really cool. It tastes like a chocolate stout, like in the fermenter. Um, a lot of fun. Yeah, so, that's, that is a lot of fun. Yeah. It's like the, by far the most expensive thing that I make. It's ridiculously <laughs> expensive. We only sell it in like little bottles. Sure. Um, but a lot of really cool stuff. And so that is our first real foray into the American single malt whiskey category. Um, we've mm. done a few like small releases from it, but we're producing, you know, I think we're doing like two barrels of this a year, basically. Um, and so it's going to be a consistent special release for us. Or actually, sorry, one barrel a year. Yeah. Um, um, so we're going to be putting that out probably one barrel a year kind of a thing. Um, wow. Yeah. But pretty cool. A lot of fun. Um, we've done some old fashions with it where you just sort of go deep on like the chocolate notes and things using like some chocolate bitters and things like that. You really pull out some cool flavors. But it's a fun whiskey. And it's neat to have that be part of that American single malt whiskey evolution. Part mm -hmm. of that sort of creation of this, you know, yeah, if people think single malt and they think 
they think Irish, they think Scotch, they think some of those typical flavors. And we're like, no, this is American. Like, we're going to go all the freaking way in the other direction. <laughs> we're going to like bombard you with maltiness. Yes. Um, and yeah. I and I love a very malty whiskey. I love that a lot. That's, oh, cool. That's dangerous. Yeah, that one's a very, very tasty one. That's the one. They come in little bottles, so I, I end up drinking more bottles of that because <laughs> they're half size, so it doesn't count all the way. Um, but it's um, a really fun product. I think that is, you know, bourbon and rye are the things that are you're going to find in most of our stuff. You're going to find those in distribution. You're going to find those in a lot of worked into our cocktail mm-hmm. program. Um, but life would be really boring if we were only ever making, you know, two whiskeys. Right. Um, so I think at the moment I poured samples of three for you, but I think I've got five or six different whiskeys that we've got out in some different variation at the moment. Um, and then the barrel house, you know, every year there's a one or two weird experiments that we've got. There's a hundred percent rye back there. There's one where I decided I was only going to use red ingredients, um, for a bourbon, like with bloody butcher corn and red wheat and, you know, red malts. Like, so playing around and being experimental. Now those are like, you know, there's one barrel or two barrels of those. Um, but those are those things that make, um, the, the whiskey and distilling and, and it gets the, the whiskey fans sort of something else to look forward to. Well, and, and I mean, you kind of beat me to it. Cause that's one of my questions I'd love to ask, uh, distillers, especially craft distillers, because you have that freedom to just play. You can wake up one morning and say, what if I put this in that? Yeah. And uh, we still have to pay for it. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's, that's fun to, that's fun to hear. I mean, is that, is that probably your favorite part of the job is that you can kind of just adventure into the unknown and make stuff yeah um so i I would say there it's a double-edged sword because yeah in the end right i still have to make something that someone else other than me is going to drink (laughs) um like we've done some cool grappas and things like that because oh there are few 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 people excited about that i I mean a few people excited about it (laughs) like you know you're just like oh wow that's great we've got 200 bottles of that special release that nobody but like seven old guys from like you know the italian neighborhood in wilmington want um so there's an economics to it but we also yeah, if you're a big, huge distiller, right, you know, you're like, oh, I have to be able to sell a million bottles of this or it's not even worth me making it. Right. Um, versus us who we can pull off some little random things. Um, you know, we'll have a winery call who um, has a wine that, that didn't perform as well as they want. And they need to get it out of a tank or have breweries that, you know, like, hey, you know, this beer, whatever, we, we didn't sell anywhere near as much of it as we thought we would. What can you guys do with it? I'm like, oh, you know beer is just whiskey waiting to happen right like so like so we do some of these little like one-off things that we know aren't going to be big sellers but they're going to be those touch points where the 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 evangelist consumers or the the people who are are really adventurous they're gonna want to try it exactly um and you know like we can have them come in and try it they're probably going to grab a bottle of it i don't need to sell a thousand bottles of it right i just need to you know break even on it as sort of an experiment right right i i'm curious too about cask finishes or any kind of finishes mm-hmm. you do have you done that have you yeah. played with that so um a nice thing about having a, a partner with a winery just down the street <laughs> yeah. um is that we've got a cat we we trade casks um of course. so the um we've got a few different things um in the back here we've done uh rye whiskey finished in in uh, red wine casks we've done a bourbon finished in red wine casks um this next spring we're going to be putting out we make a pot still our irish style whiskey um we've got that in red wine casks that we're going to do 
Um, so certainly playing around a little bit there. We haven't delved into buying, you know, folders or um, port pipes and stuff like that yet. Um, though it's on our list of, of sort of, I think, places where we want to be. But it's we've created some of these fun partnerships and, and also partnerships with breweries where, you know, hey, we're finishing a beer in a, a cask that you guys used for a chocolate for a stout or something like that right um we've definitely played around with some of those and we're doing more of it yeah um i think that once you kind of you know you hit your stride you you you've got your whiskeys where you want them to be then you sort of branch out and find those unique places to play around yeah for sure but it was there uh when you first started this this vision was there a, a point you wanted to get to that was like this was my mark what i wanted to do i wanted to make a good rye i wanted to make a good bourbon what was your what's your baby i guess yeah um <laughs> I think it's that spot where you go and you you open up the liquor cabinet and you look and you're grabbing your bottle ah. like before you're grabbing something else. Sure. Right. Um, and and for gin, that's an easy one because I really like our gin. But like but it's taken a while for for our whiskeys to get to a point where it is the thing where I'm like, yeah, that's really what I'm looking forward to. Um, and, and my whiskey collection is extensive, um, as you would imagine, yeah. but, um, but that is, so that is this measure to me of like the things that I'm like, you know, I'm not even thinking twice about it. I know that this is what I'm making and I know this is what I'm grabbing. Um, that is a point of success. Uh, you know, I, I really, really liked rye whiskey. Um, this is true for my business partner, Ron. So I think the rye whiskey has been the thing that we have like probably been the proudest of sure um in that it has been you know it it really came into its own how we wanted it to it seems to have matched up to as much of where we wanted it to be it's still the little brother to bourbon when it comes to sales um but i think that's probably that piece and then you know we get to try these um things you know when you're pulling out cask strength rye whiskey at 125 proof and like you know, just sitting there enjoying it all afternoon and being like, this stuff's fantastic. Um, that's really, it makes you proud. Yeah. So. Have you done any uh, barrel proof or cast strength stuff? Um, we've done a couple of them. Yeah. So we did a cask strength rye release. Um, uh, and we've done, we did a, one of our special releases. We did it as a cask strength. Um, and, and so what we see here for our environment, every environment is, is a little bit different. Um, we typically see a climb. Um, mm. If we are barreling at around 120, um, we are typically harvesting around 125 to 127 proof. Um, we did one, we barreled at 120. We harvested, this is for one of these specialties, uh, harvested 133. Wow. Um, and we are, it's another place where we've done more of them. We've also done some cast strength releases for like barrel clubs, right. things like that, where they're buying an entire barrel or something like that. Um, we have not had a a standard cask strength release yet though gotcha Is probably there... coming at some point awesome yeah well, i'll stay tuned for that yeah i'm a, I'm a cast strength nerd because mm -hmm. I... it's nice cast strength gives you a great spot right you you can do you can enjoy it neat and it's hot and like you get used to that and and you really like it it gives you plenty of flexibility to play around with with you know ice or other things like that if you care to um but it's a niche audience right, right. You're, we, you pour in 133 proof whiskey for people as a sample and like, you can tell when they're not ready for that. <laughs> yeah. like, it's Ooh. not fun to watch. <laughs> oh my God, it's burning. And that just made me think, have you ever, have you ever uh, sold any new make? Have you ever thought about doing that as? We did, when we first opened, we had a, a new make corn whiskey that we did. Okay. Um, and it was a, 
it was to fill a gap. Sure. Um, as soon as we had aged whiskey, um, the sales of that dropped off. We knew that was what was going to happen. Um, we don't have the moonshine sort of like thing that's never where we wanted to be. Sure. So for us, it was something we were going to put out at the beginning, um, but we knew it was going to fall away. Um, so yeah, we did a corn whiskey. Now we still do a corn whiskey. Um, but the corn whiskey that we do uses a lot of applewood and mesquite wood smoked malt. So 20% of the mash bill is smoked malts. Um, and we age it in our used bourbon barrels for five years. Oh, wow. Um, so it is, it is, it's, it's corn whiskey yeah. by definition, but it is not the moonshine corn whiskey that we had out, you know, 10 years ago or nine years ago. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. cool. Well, so shifting from whiskey, I know we have one more sample. Yes. I know this is kind of a weird one. Yeah, so this is a weird one. Um, so when we were coming back, this was um, 2012, we were driving back from spending a week or two out drinking, um, driving around, not the same time, obviously, <laughs> um, um, for a distilling convention. And one of the fun things about these conventions, um, I don't, they can't really do it anymore, but they used to have these massive tasting events. Mm. Just picture hundreds and hundreds of bottles of liquor covering tables and you get a glass. Just right. Go try whatever you want to. Um, quite entertaining results, as you would expect. But <laughs> yep. the um, but people would bring really weird stuff. So there's all these like random, like sometimes unlabeled bottles or jars and stuff. And you're chasing all this. And 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 so we tried some very strange stuff that was sort of like there was one that was a smoked salmon vodka. There's like the milk vodka out of Vermont and all these things. And we're just like. Okay, well, you're sort of grabbing onto what's the the unique thing about your place. I'm like, so what's the most Delaware thing that we could possibly make? And we settled on the idea that it would be Scrapple flavored vodka. Um, and Delaware produces a lot of Scrapple. There's plenty of debate about who has ownership of it, but but a lot of it comes out of Delaware. Um, and I don't know whether you've had much Scrapple in your time. I've had Scrapple, okay. but for the people in the Midwest where I'm from, yeah, explain Scrapple. So Scrapple <laughs> is a, it's a breakfast meat, um, sort of like sausage. Um, it's made using all the other pork parts, um, as well as um, uh, a lot of corn. Um, so cornmeal, um, it, but it gets a lot of the same spices. So you're gonna find a lot of sage, black pepper, um onion like those sort of things um that are used apples um is a big thing used in making scrapple it is it's um uh part of the 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 like um mennonite pennsylvania dutch like community um and so it's pretty th here in the the mid-atlantic area in pennsylvania maryland delaware you know northern virginia scrapple is a really pretty common breakfast meat um, so scrapple and egg sandwiches, you're going to find at most of the places around here, right next to the sausage egg and bacon egg and, you know, ham and egg. Um, so, but it's weird. Um, it looks weird. It looks like a gray loaf. Like if you left spam sitting out too long, like it's no longer pink. It's like, this is this gray loaf. Um, and, um, and it's not for everybody. Right. Um, so. But the, the idea was, so we, we hit on this, we're just like, oh, that would be really funny, Scrapple flavored <laughs> vodka. Yeah, no one's gonna ever buy that. And, um, but we've, what we, we had a great time making a joke out of it. We, 
like sort of drop it in conversation when people ask what it is that we're going to make. Oh, we're going to do gin. We're going to do bourbon. We're going to do vodka. We're going to do scrapple vodka. We're going to do rye. <laughs> and they're like, hold on, wait a minute, go back. Go back. <laughs> and um, enough people had sort of hit on this idea of like, oh, that sounds really, really weird and cool that we decided one day, um, you know, we were, we were running. I can't remember what we were making in the big still. Um, but we we're like, well, let's just throw all this stuff in this in the little test still and see what happens right so yeah. made it looked up like how do you make scrap I'm like okay well you, do, 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 you take all these things and you throw them in there we're like okay cool we'll put some neutral spirit in there go to the store buy all this stuff and grab a couple pounds of scrapple too we'll throw that right in there and um it's a pork product so this is not vegan or kosher um and and what came out was actually pretty tasty um, and so, right, we bring it out to the tasting bar and we pour samples for people like, hey, look, we tried this thing. What do you think of this? And like people are like, wow, this is actually pretty good. And we're like, OK, we need to find some different people. Something's wrong with these people. Let's <laughs> find some other folks. And um, so we ended up doing a bunch of different like small experimental batches, like playing with this idea. Um, and we rolled out what we call off the hoof, which is a scrapple flavored vodka. Um, so it's a savory vodka. You think people think flavored vodka and they think, you know, fruity or candy flavors, berries and stuff like that. Right. This is is very savory. Um, sage and black pepper, like, and then you've got this underlying like meatiness um that's just this kind of unique feature to it. Yeah. That's a you just saw my face, but <laughs> That's surprisingly different than I thought, and I actually don't mind this at all. Yeah, yeah. So that's it. Like, I don't mind it. Is like uh, the ringing endorsement we often get when we pour <laughs> this stuff at festivals and all this. Um, so it is. People expect it to be some like kind of like offensive or, or something like that. It it is not. It's a savory vodka. Uh, yeah. The flavors like sort of go into. It does really well in in cocktails like Bloody Marys is where most of it goes. Mm -hmm. um, dirty martinis it does really well in. Um, we make a cocktail here called a Scrapple Driver um, that uses um, apple cider um, and um, maple syrup as a sweetener for it. Um, like people love it. Yeah, um, it's a unique kind of weird. But we get calls from all over the world for that one. Um, really, people who. We've, we have there's a guy who did a movie about Scrapple. He came to to sort of like videotape this. We've gotten there's a book about Scrapple, and we ended up in there. So it's um it's a unique thing. Um, but like I mean, quite literally, you thought we, we were like, oh, we're gonna make this once. Right? Yeah, there's gonna be one batch of this. So come get it because it's probably never gonna get made again. And ten years later, we're still making it. Wow. So yeah, that's but just sort of a unique kind of funny thing. Yeah, it's a thing that, you know, it, it became an it was a novelty at first. Yeah. And now it's a yeah, it's, it's actually a, a good seller. That's, yeah, that's yeah. Wild. yeah. 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 I think um, uh, Playboy um, had it and they like it's like one of like the strangest spirits in the country, you know, like a few <laughs> years, like a number of years ago. Like it's um, it's just something kind of unique and it grabs people. It's one of those things that gets people at festivals. Right. Um, so, you know, it's in order to sell it into the bloody mary bars it's in a lower cost bottle it's lower margin item um for us but it's sort of it, it's not a loss leader we're a small business you can't have loss leaders That's what <laughs> um but in um it's definitely one of those things that like you know you want you have to like sort of grab a little of attention yeah um so yeah I, I'm, I'm i'm my brain's still a little confused because that is good like i like that 
Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> wow. Well, good job. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Thank you. It, it's one of the ones of, of the products that we've done, the amount of R&D that went into that one, um, was really quite impressive. It is also, if you were to walk in on a day that we're making it, you're like, wow, it smells so interesting and cool in here. And then when you go to like clean the still after that, because we put, when we're doing a batch of it, we're legit putting 40 pounds of scrapple right into the still. Wow. Right? Like it's one of these ones where I'm always, I'm always amazed that we got the the federal government approval for it. Yeah. Because you have to list all of your ingredients. And we're like, all right, scrapple. Like <laughs> thinking just like, there's no way on earth they're going to let that fly. Um, but they did, right? Just like they let smoked salmon vodka and like, like the guys in Vermont who were making something with like the beaver, like, whatever like glands in it and there's some strange stuff out there oh yeah i've seen some but yeah yeah, that's uh that's interesting people also think that it's going to taste like the bacon flavored vodka right um which i will tell you is both vegan and kosher so there's no way no bacon's never been near that it's a fake flavor yeah it's just that like liquid smoke flavor um and um um and it obviously doesn't taste like like liquid smoke. So. Yeah, I, I had assumed because I, when I when I was you know doing a little bit of research on you and and, re, and reading your website and seeing what spirits you made, I had assumed that this was just one of those gimmicky you know liquid fake flavor whatever. And I I actually really enjoy hearing that it's actually scrapple. <laughs> yeah, in the still that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, well kudos to that. Yeah, so th- those are fun. I mean, that's a little picture of the things. You know, we're I I think right now there maybe we may have. 11 or 12 different spirits that we've got out you know some of them are experimental things where it's one batch and and we're kind of we use the te- the bar here as a great way to test it um other things are stuff that are occasional releases that you know we're we're putting out one barrel of it and then you know when it's gone well there'll be another one next year or two years from now kind of thing so um that's the fun of getting to play around with a lot of stuff we can have you know 12 different spirits on the shelf um, and trying to have something for everybody, right? The people who come in and they're, they're vodka drinkers. And that's really what they like, or they're a whiskey drinker. Um, you know, this year we branched out into, to playing around with some rums. Um, we've started doing, especially since the pandemic, we started playing around doing a lot more liqueurs. Mm-hmm. And so we have a whole line of liqueurs that we release in the fall. Um, they're challenging. They're, they're way harder to make than anything else. <laughs> um, it, because if you want to use real ingredients, it's right, hard. Right. Um, if you want to use extracts and like flavorings and stuff like that, you can make any flavored thing super easy. You know, you buy this stuff by a gallon, dump it in there and you're good to go. Um, but, you know, like we want we have a ginger apple liqueur that's out, right, which takes peeling and juicing 10 pounds of ginger. Um, and there's no way I can filter every and then we cut it with with 10 gallons of apple cider for this little batch. So apple cider from the local like cidery down the street. Um, but it's, you know, there's sediment in the bottle. There's no way that I can take that out, but of course people sort of embrace that. There's some, that it's real, that yeah. it's natural. It's yeah. not just a bunch of fake flavorings kind of thing. So, right. Well, no, and as a testament more to the, you know, the craft and local aspect of what you're doing, because I think the market has shifted to want that quality product. Yeah. So that goes across all the things you make. And I think that's great. Yeah. And, and now <laughs> it's not, you don't have to sell something everywhere to everyone and have it be exactly the same thing year after year. Right. Um, I think that people have embraced that, that there's something local about this. There's something of the moment uh, and of the place that make these things unique and people are cool with that, right? They want to share it with their friends, 
Um, you know, it's tricky because Delaware is one of the only states left where we can't ship any product. Mm. Um, so it's hard for us to get product out to to people. But the holiday season, you know, we'll see tons of people grabbing these special releases and stuff to share them, you know, once a year with their friends and family out all over the country. Um, and it's something I think people are, we see more and more people appreciate more and more of that localness of a product, yeah. even if they're not local. They like the idea that it is local to yeah, someone. Absolutely. I, well, I, I can't appreciate you enough to, to be here and uh, in your space and learn more about uh, Pins Dave and try your stuff. But Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure. So yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank appreciate you very it. much. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd appreciate it if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The more reviews, the easier we are to find. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow us on social media so you never miss any of our updates. Be sure to share this episode with your friends, and always be sure to drink responsibly. There are quite literally thousands of distilleries, so we're just getting started. Stay tuned for more conversations with master distillers, distillery owners, mixologists, and even bar owners, and more. Cheers. <laughs>